to be here. And I mean that. I'm not lying like some of you that just said amen. Listen, I want to share a couple of things with you. Uh, Jason, I was watching what you were saying and, or listening to what you were saying, watching what you were doing, but did you happen to mention this, the 12? I just want to put that out there real quick because that's on the foyer table as well. And that's just, a, um, this is our brief synopsis. This is our, our 12 lessons that we're going to be going into on Wednesday nights. And we just want you to be able to kind of know in advance kind of the direction. That way, if you're getting impatient with us, you'll know if you'll hold on. We'll, we'll probably get there, but you, we've got an order to it. We planned this out, and we prayed, that, we prayed that God led us in this study. We really believe the Lord has had his favor upon us. Um, we have a much larger audience of people that come now because of Facebook Live. People from, we have folks from South Africa, Miss Dots, kinfolk that come every now and then to, here in the United States, have returned back to South Africa, and they watch every Sunday morning. Folks from California, I, know, I mean, there's a lot of places they could turn on, and uh, they're choosing to join uh, here with us at First Assembly, and we really appreciate it. My, my lovely wife, I hope, is watching in uh, San Antonio, Texas this morning, because Sister Sherry got on an airplane on Wednesday to go out. To, she flew to Lubbock first, met Austin there, and went back to San Antonio so she could keep their children, um, Laura and uh, Olivia, and so, or Lara and Livia, there's all together. There's Larry, there's Lori, there's Lorraine, there's Lauren, there's Leroy. And so, Olivia and Lara, let me get it right. And uh, she, so she could take care of them so that Lauren, that's what I was trying to say, so Lauren could be at the hospital to be with uh, Larry and Shannon. And uh, Larry uh, showed great improvement this week. And so I appreciate your faith. I really believe that you added your agreement with ours on this platform, and we were able, by the faith of God, to send the angel and join to the faith of Larry and Shannon and Lauren and all their family, and we're seeing um, a miraculous recovery. So we're praying for you. We're thankful to that today. Amen? So I want to ask you to turn with me in, your, in the Bible to uh, 1 Samuel chapter number 10 and 1 Samuel chapter number 19. I really am so pleased to have this opportunity to share the Word of God with you today and to join with these other men of God as they have led us in both song, worship, exhortation, encouraging us as worshipers. Um, it's my privilege then to follow, on, follow along and join with them by bringing the Word to you. And it's already been shared that there's a historical component today. I feel like it's important. We have, because of not only a Facebook Live, but a few other things, we have a, a little different audience that's a part of our church family now, or at least for this season of, of a life. And for me, I enjoy, I enjoy the, the enlightenment that takes place when somebody discovers this, where we came from. You know, there's, how many of you know it's a big deal today? People get their DNA tested to find out, you know, their origins and, you know, what type of... Uh, ethnicities that they have in their history and stuff. That's a big deal. Well, I want you to, to see today where, where we are today and what we've built upon, how we arrived at where we are at today as being a part of the Pentecostal charismatic movement. And uh, hopefully it will help you understand. Hopefully it will be a spark. That's my desire above all else is that it's a desire, it's a spark inside of you to, to stir, if you're already uh, for a long time been a part of the spirit-filled movement to, to stir up the gift of God that's on the inside of you. 
I mean, it's stirring my heart. I'm, I'm keeping myself on the altar fresh. And God, help me. I want, a, I want a fresh. I don't mind it at all when somebody prays a prayer and says, God, put a fresh anointing on our pastor. That's what I pray for myself. So I'm thankful for what they do. But uh, if, you've not, if you've never received what we would call a baptism in the Holy Spirit, I pray that through the teachings this week, last week, the next several weeks, I pray, Lord, that there will be, uh, there'll be a, a desire inside of you that just begins to pursue, begins to say, God, I believe it, and I want to receive it. All right, that's my goal. And so if you would, take your Bibles. It's open there. It's on the screen, but I still, if you've got your Bible with you, stand up with me. We're going to read about, I don't know, seven or eight, or about nine or ten verses of Scripture today. And I think you're going to be kind of wondering why I'm here originally, and I'll clarify for that in a moment. First Samuel chapter number 10, verses 5 through 10 says, and this is the prophet Samuel speaking to Saul, who has been chosen by God to be the first king of Israel. After that, Samuel saying, after that, thou shalt come to the hill of God. I just like the title there, the hill of God. Where is the garrison of the Philistines? And obviously, there's a, a garrison of the enemy attempting to prevent people from accessing the hill of God. And it shall come to pass, when thou art come thither to the city, that thou shalt meet a company of prophets coming down from the high place with a psaltery and a tabret and a pipe and a harp before them, and they shall prophesy. Now, let me tell you right here, music matters. Worship matters. Creating an atmosphere, creating a moment. God said that he inhabits the praises of his people. And so... That's why we are very uh, particular in our song choices, and we choose songs that we believe create a moment where God to, to, to just uh, choose to dwell among us and let his presence be known. So and then he said this, and, and the spirit of the Lord will come upon thee. I like that, don't you? And thou shalt prophesy with them and shall be turned into another man, sometimes just being in the right place. An old song years ago said he was blood-bought, victory sought, stumbled in the altar, and Lord, he got caught. And so sometimes just being, as it's already been said, being around others, but what you don't realize, God led you. God led you to be there. And let it be when these signs are coming to thee that thou do as occasion serve thee, for God is with thee. And thou shalt go down before me to Gilgal, and behold, I will come down unto thee to offer burnt sacrifices and to sacrifice sacrifices a peace offering seven days shalt thou tarry till I come to thee and show thee what thou shalt do and it was so that when he had turned his back to go from Samuel God gave him another heart and all those signs came to pass that day and when they came thither to the hill behold a company of prophets met him and the spirit of God came upon him and he prophesied among them now we're going to flip over about nine chapters to the 19th chapter of 1 Samuel. And this is Saul once again. And this is Saul's under conflict now by the 19th chapter. He's wrestling with some things. But he knows that there's some things that he needs in his life. And it's the presence of God. But God is still, can still work in him if he'll allow him to. But let's just read this because I want you to catch kind of what happened here again. And this time, Saul, Saul's jealousy has is, is moved him to try to take David. Saul has sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as appointed over them, 
The Spirit of God was upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Are y'all following this story? And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they prophesied also. Then went he also to Ramah. So he finally just said, I'm going myself. And he came to a great well that is in Sichu, or Siku, and he asked and said, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Well, behold, they are in Naoth in Ramah. And he went thither to Naoth in Ramah, and the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Naoth in Ramah. Now, there's always been just a little bit of controversy and some things that are associated with Pentecostalism. So I'll throw this in for good measure. Verse 24. And he stripped off all his clothes and prophesied before Samuel. Now, we do not promote that in any situation. Earlier, it was what to do. This is just what not to do. He stripped off all his clothes, also prophesied before Samuel in like manner, and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Wherefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets. Now, he most likely wasn't like, like totally naked. He was probably still partially clothed, but that's a term they use to describe him removing his kingly garments. And they said, but notice this, wherefore they say, is Saul also among the prophets? So today, I'll share with you why I chose that passage here in a moment. A lesson from history. That's a great place for us to start. A lesson from history. Father, I thank you today. Joining my faith with this collective faith of the men and women that are present. Let nothing that's, Father God, that's happened to any of us this week or even today, negative, that could uh, affect or uh, interfere with what you're wanting to do. Let all, as it's been driven out, let all anxiety flee from us right now, like shadows driven from the room by the light of your word, the illumination of your word. I pray today, God, Father, stir us. Come on now. Stir us today. Father, stir our faith to believe. We want to be a people of the Spirit. We don't want to just learn from history. We want to, Father God, advance that history. That's what we want to do. It's in Jesus' name. And everybody said amen. Is Saul among the prophets was the question. It's a proverb that was posed because of these two separate occasions. Many times, even as I started this series, reminding us of our spiritual uh, heritage and the uniqueness of being um, spirit-filled and a belonging for the spirit-filled experience, I took you to David. But we often overlook that Saul, the first king, before God would have him sit upon a throne and govern the children of Israel, he said, I want you to first go to the hill of God. How I many you know before God fully sends you out into your purpose and into what God's called you to do and to be, he's got a special place for you. He's got a place where his presence and his glory can abide, and it will come upon you if you believe. And so I want you to see today what we know, and I'm going to teach you in the weeks ahead of the spiritual gifts, the works of the Spirit. Those are things that some of you are greatly intrigued by right now. All of us that have been in the Spirit-filled movement for many, many years, we are familiar and yet also unfamiliar. We have learned a lot in these many years. I received the baptism or the infilling of the Holy Spirit when I was 17, and I am 52, so there's been a lot of water under the bridge. And how many of you know, when I think about my experience and all that I can know and learn in God, I think I have just one grain of sand 
off the seashore because that's how broad, how wide, how deep the glories and the wonders of God is. But I want you to know, again, that the spiritual gifts and the works of the Spirit that you read about in the New Testament, they're not new to the people of God except for tongues and interpretation. That's the only thing that's new is tongues and interpretation. The rest, every other, the seven other additional spiritual gifts that I'll teach you about, you can find them in the Old Covenant. So I wanted to start, I wanted to show you this because it was unique in the way that it happened with Saul. Saul happened to go to a place where people were filled with the presence of God. They had dedicated their lives to the Torah, to the study of the Word, to the prophetic unction of God, and they kept things fresh and new. And just by being in a general vicinity and then getting closer to them was a release of God's power and presence in Saul's life. Just tuck that away. Don't forget about this. So what we know is the baptism in the Spirit and the subsequent charismatic gifts was prophesied by Jesus. It was prophesied by Old Testament prophets, obviously, such as Joel, who Peter quotes on the day of Pentecost. But if you really want to see how it began in the early church, you've got to look at Jesus. Number one, Jesus' own life was marked by his baptism at the Jordan River. Not in the waters below, but in the heavenly waters above. The Spirit of God that fell upon him that day and empowered him for service. And then he told on multiple occasions his disciples, don't tarry, or excuse me, don't leave Jerusalem, tarry at Jerusalem, because I've, I've destined something for you. I've ordained a moment where the same power that's upon me as I talked last week about Moses, would be divided upon that 120 in the upper room. And you and I can study this out. It's readily seen in the book of Acts. It's taught openly in Paul's epistles. And so you can study and you can know that God moved powerfully in the first century church. Jesus himself had said, The works that I do shall you do also, and greater works than these. We can see every miracle that Jesus did, and we can see at least a little hint of it accomplished in the lives of the apostles. But it wasn't just the apostles. In that very first experience in Acts chapter number 2, there was 120 men and women fulfilling what Joel said. Handmaids and servants and young men and old men. God just collectively, it was on all flesh. Right? That stirs me today, today because I know then that all of us can receive more of God's presence. Right? And so we, can, we know with certainty God did great signs and wonders. Paul said in, in Romans 15, through many signs and wonders, I have preached the gospel. And so, but what many modern theologians believe, though, unfortunately, many modern theologians believe that the gifts of the Spirit and the miraculous works of the Spirit of God passed away with either two things. Number one, either the death of the last apostle or... The canon of Scripture, the completion of the canon of Scripture. They believe that if those that believe that it was the canon of Scripture believe that there was a diminishing of the gifts based upon the death of the last apostle and it would finally be ex- extinguished when the canon of Scripture was given. Now, that group of people is called cessationists and you can find entire denominations that hold to that belief system. But you and I, part of the Pentecostal charismatic movement, we don't believe that. We're continuous. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit continue even up until this day and this hour. But what I want you to see today is that history reveals otherwise towards the cessationists. History reveals 
though often obscure and without a lot of information provided, we can easily conclude that spiritual gifts continue to flourish, especially in the first three centuries after the death of the last apostle. And I'm going to look first to a few of those records, of those accounts. And I'm not going to try to bore you with just a lot of, of just excerpts from history, but I'm just going to just flash them just real quickly. Not on the screen, but you're going to have to listen very carefully. Now, if there is a historian, or excuse me, a, a historian here today that will judge me and say, man, that brother struggles to get those names right. I'll, I'll admit that right away. But here, what, I, you, what you probably don't know is the majority of my congregation does too. So we're on a level playing field here. So Justin Martyr who lived from A.D. 100 to 165, who was scourged and beheaded because he refused to worship the Roman gods, writes in his defense of the Christian faith, he says this, the empire of spirits, he's talking about the demonic world, he said, has been destroyed by Jesus. Been destroyed by Jesus, he said, and you may even now convince yourselves by what is passing before your own eyes. For he said, for many of our people, of us Christians, have healed and still continue to heal in every part of the world. And even in your city of Rome, numbers possessed by evil spirits are healed, such as could not be healed by other exorcists, simply by adjuring them in the name of Jesus Christ, who was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He said, there are prophetic gifts among us even until now, and you may see us with both men and women having gifts from the Spirit of God. So that's from 100 to 150. Eusebius, who was the famous church historian of Caesarea, writes between AD two, or he lived between A.D. 260 and 340. And he writes, he says, of those that flourished in the times, he said there's this one particular brother who is said to have been extinguished, distinguished for his prophetic giftings. So now we're almost two to 300 years later. He said there are many others also noted in these times who held rank in the apostolic succession. The Spirit of God was upon them, he said, and there were many wonders worked through them. And even when they preached, they said, and when the gospel was heard, men in the crowd voluntarily and eagerly embraced the true faith with their whole minds because of the power and the presence of the Spirit of God. Arrhenius, who was the overseer of the church at Lyons in France, uh, from anywhere from 115 or somewhere 125 to 202 is his lifespan, he writes and he says this, uh, as he's refuting against heresies. He says, a refutation, or excuse me, let me read further. In his writings, he defends the gifts of the Holy Spirit. He says, even among the brethren right now, frequently in the case of necessity, when the whole church was united in much fasting and prayer, uh, the Spirit returned to a dead body. So he's writing almost 300 years from the first century. And so let me try to put this in layman's terms for us. He's saying, we've had works of God among us, even where there was a moment where we had a brother among us that died, and the church came together in unity, joined their hearts together in covenant faith with prayer and fasting, and his spirit re-entered his body, and he was raised from the dead. We just got through singing a song that God could move the mountain. And nothing's impossible to him. He, went on, he goes on to write. He said there were of his disciples, many of which have received grace from him. In his name they performed these things for the benefit of the rest of men, as everyone has received the free gift from him. 
Some have been cleansed from wicked spirits. Some have believed and received, uh, been received into the church. Others have the knowledge of things to come. Others have visions and prophetic communications. Others heal the sick by the imposition of hands and restore others to health. To health. He said, where the name of the Lord Jesus Christ even now converse benefits. Hear that. I want you to hear the words of an ancient church father that he says, even now the name of the Lord Jesus Christ confers benefits upon the people of God. Listen, when you confess and profess the name of Jesus, Jesus himself said, in that day you shall ask me nothing. Did you know that? He said, in that day, he said, you ask the Father in my name. And if you ask the Father in my name, I will do it that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Man, I thank God for that today. The first and second and third century church got a hold of what the apostles were saying. And they believed and they took God at his word. Tertullian of Carthage in North Africa, from 160 to 220 was his lifespan. He speaks about prophets that have the ability uh, to, to speak things by the Spirit of God, that, that can, can produce psalms, prophetic songs, uh, uh, prophetic visions, prophetic prayer, and also uh, spirits of ecstasy and interpretation of tongues. He goes on to say that many have uh, uh, seen miracles in the name of Jesus all throughout the Roman Empire. Um, for the sake of time, I'm going to move on. Even one of the last is Augustine. And Augustine uh, writes, uh, his lifespan is from A.D. 354 to 430. And we know by now that Constantine has been converted. And we've seen the, uh, the edict of uh, toleration where the Roman persecution that was once so great against the first and second and third century church, now there's, there's, a, there's an offering of of being tolerant, and so the Christian God and this Christian Jesus is able to be worshipped amongst the other Roman gods without the persecution, and so we know that from that time forward, though, we did begin to see a lessening of spiritual gifts. And Augustine writes, Augustine began his life in his writing career as a cessationist, believing that the gifts of the Spirit had passed away. But later he writes, he goes on to write, he said, in, towards the end of his life, he said, I, I've changed. He refutes everything that he said because he said, I've seen too much. I've seen the hand of God. I've seen too many miracles. He said, now, we're not having the full force of miracles, what they saw several years earlier. He said, but God is still at work doing miracles. And I'm just simply paraphrasing for the sake of time. But then, unfortunately, we come to a period of time, what we know as the Dark Ages. And the Dark Ages is 1,000-plus years of church history where the church was hidden in the dark. What does that mean? They didn't have access to the illuminating power of the Scriptures. We know by now that Catholicism has emerged, and we know that the Roman pontiff, and we know that the priests, and the Scriptures are only in Latin, and the common man doesn't understand and doesn't have access to the Scriptures. And so we have clerical and ecclesiastical authority. And somewhere along the line, the pure, simple gospel gets lost. Right, Church history reveals that to us. And so, yes, you do see for hundreds and even thousands, uh, not necessarily thousands of years, but for hundreds of years, you see a lessening of those spiritual gifts. But how many know God's always had a remnant? God's always had a people. He's always had somewhere. God's always looking for somebody to believe him and to take him at his word. So we've got just a, a you can go and study that many times there were monks that had the Spirit of God come upon them, and they saw miracles. Simeon, the new theologian, he writes in somewhere around uh, the year 1000 A.D., uh, he reports that of intimate spiritual experiences, including a baptism in the Holy Spirit, distinct from the graces received at, sacra at sacrament, 
uh, Hildegard of, ben- of Benjamin, I don't know where that's at, but you don't either, experiences ecstatic visions and gifts of tears and wisdom and knowledge and prophecy. And numerous miracles are attributed to her. She's female because God said, I'll pour my spirit out upon all flesh, not just to the men folk. It's to the ladies just equally as well. The Spirit of God is promised to come upon Gregory Palamaeus. He emphasizes in the years between 1296 and 1359. He emphasizes in his teaching the laying on of hands for the reception of the gifts of healing, miracles, foreknowledge, irrefutable wisdom, diverse tongues, and interpretation of tongues. And in my studies, I've learned, because we I wasn't taught a lot about this earlier, but with the two sacraments, with both the giving of communion emblems, there was an expectation of divine healing something that we hold dear to because we believe the broken body and the blood of Jesus Christ provides healing not only for the soul but for the body. Come on now. But also in water baptism. What Water baptism, there was an anticipation when somebody was being water baptized in their, uh, into the Christian faith that there would be an expectation that the Spirit of God would come mightily upon them with signs and gifts of the Holy Spirit being dispersed in their life for the service of the kingdom of God. Because God's not going to send you out for His service without equipping you. Listen, we live, in a, we live amongst fallen angels. Right? We're learning that. And God's going to equip you to be strong in the Lord. To be bold and full of, full of the power of God. And so we can see this in history. So let me jump now to what we would call a little bit more of modern history. Maybe a little bit more of familiarity. So we then begin to see Martin Luther with this 95 Thesis nailed to the door of the church at Wittenberg, Germany, uh, announcing, you know, uh, 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 the things that were against the Catholic Church that he disagreed with. But, and we see the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. But Martin Luther is one who that many feel like all the nine charismatic gifts flowed through the life of Martin Luther. John Calvin also both believed in the charismatic gifts. Did you know the early Quakers, 1650, the reason why they were called Quakers? It's not because of their oats that they liked. It's because they shook and quaked under the power of God. Come on now, are y'all out there today? So we see God starting to do something. We see a little ember here and a little flame here. But but in a in a in a little while it's gonna all come together. It's gonna all come together. And so, but we, today, this is going to help a lot of you today. The forerunner, as Jason's already mentioned, of the modern Pentecostal movement was a hero of many of ours, and that's John Wesley. And that m- many times you'd be surprised to learn that those of us in Pentecostal churches have greater admiration for John Wesley than those that are in the Methodist church. Because we believe it was through his experience and through his doctrine that gave us the foundation for the modern Pentecostal movement. John Wesley had gone out on the mission field and left England to go to to America and to preach to the Native Americans. And he came back and and he was not able to accomplish anything. He felt like he had failed. And so he was just struggling in his own experience. And his story is twofold. There's two experiences that we're going to know. One is in May of 1938. And it's at Aldersgate. It's more familiar to most of us. And he's standing in Aldersgate in London, England, and he's hearing a brother read the preface to Martin Luther's uh, writings about the, Ro- uh, about the book of Romans, his preface to the book of Romans. And as that brother is reading the preface to the book of Romans, he said this. He said, I felt my heart strangely warm. And he said, and for the first time in my life, I knew that my sins had been forgiven. That he knew that, his, that the grace of God had been received and that the sin debt had been nailed to Jesus Christ and he was forgiven of all of his sins. 
And many call that his baptism in the Holy Spirit, but really that's not his baptism in the Holy Spirit because that's in 1938 and that's in May of 1938. But later in the year at a watch night service from the calendar year going December 31st to to 1839, he's in a watch night service this time on Fetter Lane. And there's a group of young ministers, about 60 of them that have gathered there, even one that's already professed to having experienced the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And that would be George Whitfield, who was a part of the Great Awakening in America. And so George Whitfield had already testified to the power of God coming upon him. His brother Charles, John's brother Charles, is at Fetter Lane as well. And they spend the night, the watch night service, seeking God, worshiping God. And John said about 3 a.m. in the morning, he said, the power of God fell among us. And he said, and suddenly men stood up and began to lift up their hands and began to worship lustily with their praise and their adoration to an almighty God. The glory of God was seen. He said this, the power of God came mightily upon us. And what you and I would say, we would say that was a second work, an empowering work of the Spirit of God that would launch him into his evangelistic ministry that would culminate in over 40,000 sermons preached. Over 10,000 miles ridden on horseback. Come on, somebody. Churches established, charismatic gifts. We'll talk more about that in a moment. What you don't know is another brother, a Presbyterian in Scotland, born in 1792, a forerunner to the... Are y'all out there today? Do y'all like learning a little bit about history? Now, I'm not as familiar with this history as the history that I'm going to close with. I'm much more familiar with this. But Edward Irving was a Presbyterian. He was born a Presbyterian. His father was a, a Scottish minister, and uh, he himself was brought into the Presbyterian movement in the, in the late 1700s, professed a call to ministry, had a unique gifts, began to preach. People were, were, were drawn to him, but there was a desire in his heart. He began to see that there was more. There was something else. He began to study. In 1827, he began to pursue and to teach openly about the gifts of the Spirit. He believed in a baptism in the Holy Spirit. He began to long for it. He began in 1830 to hold prayer meetings. At his, he, by now, he's left Scotland, and he's pastoring a large Presbyterian church in London, England. And by, and he's, but he's still zealous for the things of God. In 1830, he called prayer meetings to begin to seek for the baptism of the Spirit of God and the restoration of spiritual gifts. People began to come, and people began to receive. How many of you know that began to agitate the Presbyterian officials? And they, they began to look at it, and they began to separate themselves from that doctrine. And finally, they removed him from his office as pastor of that church. And when he, they removed him, over 800 people went with him. And he started what was called the Catholic Apostolic Church. Catholic not being Roman church, but being the universal church. And they began to seek after, and they began to experience the power of the Holy Spirit. In London, England, they began to see the signs and wonders with utterance gifts especially manifested in their church. In America, the Great Awakening is seeing little pockets of a charismatic revival. George Whitfield has seen little pockets of spiritual gifts and callings. John Wesley's revivals had occasional charismatic manifestations. But I want to tell you about one that's often obscure in the history of Pentecostalism, but you need to know about it because it will help you. Because there's a little place called Cane Ridge, Kentucky. And in Cane Ridge, Kentucky, Daniel Boone had actually lived there. 
Daniel Boone had actually, Jojo had, held, had built a, a meeting house. Daniel Boone himself, the great frontiersman of American uh, heritage and history, helped build this meeting place. And they said, well, you know what? You need to call some preachers because we need to use this and, and, and see what God's going to do. So in 1801, in August of 1801, in, in, in the, day, uh, the 6th of August through the 12th, they had called for a Presbyterian minister who was having a communion service. And when he was having a communion service, there was a woman in the little log building who when she received the sacrament, when she received it for the first time in her life, like John Wesley of old, she believed her sins had been forgiven. And listen, when you're a sinner and you know that your sin debt has been eradicated by the power of the blood of Jesus... It might cause you to lift up your voice lustily in your praise to God. And right there in that log church, she began to shout and give God glory. Well, it began to spread. People started coming in a short window of time. It, the, the noise, it traveled very quickly. People got in their wagons and on horseback, and they made their way to that little log church until there were so many people that they had to go outside, and this happened suddenly. Sometimes God just does something suddenly. As many in six days as 25,000 people went to the fields around that little log church at Cane Ridge, Kentucky. There were so many people, they couldn't just have one preacher. So when they had thousands of people that were camping, that's the origination of the camp meeting right there. They got in their wagons and went, and they camped out in the open field. And as soon as it got dawn, a preacher, if he found a log to stand on, a stump to stand on, or the back of a wagon, he would start to preach, and somebody else would preach, and somebody else would preach, here and there, all throughout. And the Spirit of God began to move, and people began to experience charismatic giftings. There were loud shrieks. There were loud yellings. People began to get happy. Some people got so moved in conviction that they would groan and travail and fall all like dead men before the presence of the living God. Some people were horrified and afraid and ran from it. I read many years ago that there was a, a person on a horseback that was several miles away and he was, let's just say, going south, and Cane Ridge was north. And his horse, all of a sudden, turned around and went north. And he pulled on the reins, and he pulled on the reins, and he pulled on the reins, and the horse wouldn't stop. And it took him many miles through the backwoods of Kentucky, took him to Cane Ridge. The revival was going on. The horse bowed his neck and flipped the rider off right there in the midst of it. His heart was convicted, and he got born again by the power of God. Come on now, church family. When God says, I'm going to do something, we want to let him do it. Because we need that same power in the church today. The charismatic manifestations were seen in the Kentucky Cane Ridge Revival. What time do I have? Oh, I'm doing good. Are y'all out there? Wesley, though his emphasis on holiness had led to not only the family. I just feel Jesus today. I think it's important, church family, that we take a new generation forward into the Pentecostal Spirit-filled movement by reminding them of our great heritage of faith, where we've been, the people that laid the groundwork that we built upon so that we can experience a greater outpouring because that's the, that's the desire of all, of every generation is for the next generation to enjoy more of the presence of God than we even did. And so John Wesley's emphasis on holiness had led to not only the founding of the Methodist Church but later the Holiness Church. And so during the late 1800s, 
in America, there were small pockets of charismatic renewal that were beginning to take place. And this is where the familiarity grows to me. And I'll take you in closing this aspect of it here today. The late 1800s, we saw the emergence of a man by the name of Charles Parham. Now, our church family is familiar because I've shared this many times. But how many know, church family, we got a whole new audience today? So Charles Parham, too, had been raised in the Methodist movement with his family. He had suffered uh, be, uh, tuberculosis and, and it felt like the power of God and presence of God had come upon him. His, he was born in Iowa and later moved to Kansas with his family. And because of financial things, he had entered into the ministry and entered into study at the Methodist University, but because of financial restraints, he was not able to continue, and so he withdrew. In 1891, after a time away from ministry, he was healed of the crippling effects of rheumatic fever, and he re-entered the ministry. He re-entered the ministry where people began to be saved miraculously. They began to be sanctified because he believed in Wesley's doctrine, second work of grace, of sanctification. But at that time, they were also being healed miraculously. He believed the apostolic gifts were being restored to the church. And so in October of 1900, he starts Bethel Bible School in Topeka, Kansas. Joe, you saw our little uh, grandma there is probably close, probably may even have roots going all the way back. And so he, what he did was, though, he was going out on, a, on a, a, a ministry trip, and he had about 40 students, and it was late in the calendar year, it's late December, and he said, I'm going to be gone for about five days, three to five days, and he said, I want you to study, because they had been studying spiritual gifts and functions and unctions in the church, and they said, I want you to, uh, to study, and when I come back, I want you to tell me what you believe is the biblical evidence of what they had been experiencing, what they were calling the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So when Parham returned, he returned on, on New Year's Eve and, and early in the day, and so they told him, they, he sat down with the students, and they said, we believe that the biblical evidence of, 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 of being spirit-filled is speaking with other tongues. I'll, take, I'll teach you more about that later. I don't have time to do that today. And so he said, all right. So they had a watch-night service. You've got to watch those watch-night services. A watch-night service from the calendar year going from 1900 to 1901. Now, to fill in the gap, let me go ahead and pull this back here together for just a moment. Remember Edward Irving? And the resurrection of charismatic gifts in London, England. Upon his death, he appointed 12 successors. And they continued that. Did you know the last apostolic successor to Edward Irving's ministry died late in the calendar year 1900? Now, so just don't, don't forget that. So they go to a watch night service. And a little lady there by the name of Agnes Usman. Agnes Usman says, I want you to lay hands on me, Brother Parham, and I want you to pray for me to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So Brother Parham laid his hands on Agnes Usman and began to pray over her and ask God, and she asked God to fill her with the power of the Holy Spirit. And there at Topeka, Kansas, in the Bible school, the Spirit of God fell, and Agnes received and began to speak with other tongues. And she believed that she was speaking perfect Chinese. I don't know if she was or not. But for three days, she could speak nothing but the, the, the tongue that God gave her. Even when she went to write, she wrote in that particular language. Parham claimed that it was Chinese. I don't know, but they believed that they were on to something, and they, went, they began to go around preaching a new doctrine, God will save you, save sanctify you, but he will also fill you with the power of his Holy Spirit. 
and they're laying hands on men and women and they're seeing God move in a powerful way. By 1905, they moved the Bible college to Houston, Texas. And Parham is teaching again the doctrine of salvation by the blood of Jesus, sanctification by the power of the Holy Spirit, and the infilling of the Spirit of God. Where a, 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 a young man who is a descendant of slaves, his mother and father are slave, were slaves, former slaves, his name is William Daddy Seymour. He's blind in one eye, and he signs up for the Bible college. But because of the Jim Crow laws, he's not allowed to sit in the classroom with the other white students. And so while Parham is teaching, he's out in the hallway, seated out there, listening, learning, and accepting the doctrine. So then he, a few months later, gets a call from Los Angeles, California, to go and pastor a church, a holiness church in Los Angeles. So in April of 1906, he makes his way from Houston, Texas to the church, the Nazarene, the little holiness church, to be their pastor. He has not received the baptism, but he believes it in his heart. So he arrives at the little holiness church, and he preaches for the very first time to their ears that it's not just saved and sanctified because the holiness movement had built upon Wesley's foundation with salvation and sanctification. And he preaches that sanctification is not the baptism in the Spirit, but there is an infilling that's evidenced by speaking in other tongues. And the church didn't like what they heard. So he went back for the evening service only to find, true story, the doors were padlocked. And he was not allowed to go into the church that they had just brought him from Houston to be the pastor of. But there was another man, uh, African-American uh, uh, in the congregation. His heart was stirred. Um, he, his name was Lee. And I'll tell you what, this, God's got his hand on these folks named Lee. I don't know if we're here. What was that brother's name? His name was Edward Lee. And so he went to the home of Edward Lee, and they started prayer meetings to begin to pray for the baptism in the Holy Spirit. And so big crowds began to come. So then they went to another brother's house named Richard Asbury, and they began to pray for the power of the Holy Spirit. So they weren't seeing what they had hoped to see. So on April the 6th, they fasted, and they began to add fasting. And on April the 9th, at the home of Edward Lee, William Seymour laid hands on Edward Lee, and Edward Lee received the baptism in the Holy Spirit, and he began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit of God gave him the utterance. And then others began to receive. So that was during the day. They went back to the Asbury home for the evening service. And Brother Seymour shared a text of Scripture, preached the message, and he shared about Lee's experience. And before he could conclude his message, like Peter in the house of Cornelius in Acts chapter number 10, before he could give a benediction, before he could even ask anybody to come forward, others began to receive the baptism in the Holy Spirit, evidenced by speaking in other tongues. And so crowds began to grow. The home was too small and so they chose a place to meet and they found the old African Methodist church that had now been changed uh, turned into a livery stable the address was 312 Azusa Street Los Angeles California my daughter and Des know right where it's at and they've been there themselves and there at that livery station they had to clean out the poo-poo true story with shovels they had to clean out the mule and the horses uh, litter and get it out they built wooden bitches and then they began to share and they started services and when they started services the power of God met them there and the glory of God began to move and the power of God began to move 
Many times William Seymour would not even preach. He would come to the pulpit. You know what his pulpit was? It was boxes of uh, apple crates stacked on top of each other. Times he would just hold his head inside the apple crate and for, for hours on end as they waited in the presence of God. The Spirit of God began to fall. Racial interaction began to take place. It was interracial. People, the Hispanics and blacks and whites began to come. It could only hold just a few hundred, but 1,500 a night began to come. A revival took place that lasted three years for 365 days out of the year. For sometimes 24 hours a day, people were in church worshiping and singing and, and singing out to God, praise to God. And God was healing the sick and restoring spiritual gifts. People began to hear about it from all over the known world. And they began to travel from Sweden and Switzerland, from all over Europe, and from the African continent. Even, yes, from here in the, in the Midwest of the United States, they traveled to the West Coast to experience the power and the presence of God. Two times during the Azusa Street Revival, the fire department was called because people said, the building is on fire, you need to get there now. They saw the flames, and when they got there, they found nothing but a church service going on because of the power of God being manifested. And from that moment right there, the Pentecostal movement was not born, was catapulted into the modern era. And people took what they experienced and went back. They went back to their little churches, Presbyterian churches, Baptist churches, Methodist churches. Can you imagine what it was like when that preacher that had nothing more than a clerical degree he had education, but very little experience. He knew about the anointing. He knew about it theologically, but he had never experienced it. Can you imagine what it was like for him the very first time that he stepped in the pulpit and his face was aglow with the glory of God because he had been in the presence of an almighty God and the presence of God had come upon him and the unction and the anointing and the power of God's Spirit was now beginning to move worldwide. And from that moment right there, we began to see the healing evangelists emerge in the 20s, in the 30s, in the 40s, in the 50s, in the 60s. And signs and wonders began to be replicated. And then it crossed denominational lines. And we saw the charismatic renewal in the 1970s. We saw Episcopal people being saved and filled with the Holy Spirit. Catholics. And we see movements. How many of you know that the new Supreme Court nominee is a charismatic Catholic? with an experience that traces back to the charismatic renewal of the 1970s. And so, church family, let me tell you, you're a part of something much larger than just our small church in rural Arkansas. I've told people this for many years. I'm so grateful to be a part of the Assemblies of God, but I'm even more grateful to be a part of my spirit-filled heritage of faith. At the turn of the century, there was just a handful of spirit-filled believers. But from that time till now, the Spirit-filled movement has grown to anywhere from 500 million to 800 million adherents worldwide, making it the largest arm of the Protestant Reformation because it goes even beyond the Protestant Reformation because Catholics have come in many times and experienced the power and the presence of God. Did you know if you'll go down to Latin America, 15%, not of all Christians, 15% of the entire population of Latin America are Pentecostal believers because of the power, Pentecostal, charismatic, spirit-filled, whatever label you want to call us, as long as you accurately describe that we've got an experience with God and the power of His anointing upon our lives. Church family, we have a vast history, and I'm closing right now, 
And I took a message in the midst of doctrine and experience to say, I want you to know that you are a part of something that was birthed out of the flames, first of persecution, certainly later of prayer, and now we've received a dynamic heritage of faith, like a baton from the, from the great leaders of old have passed this faith off to you and I. And it's our responsibility to keep the fire burning. It's our responsibility to stir up the gift of God. It's our responsibility to tell you, you just think that you came here by accident. But like Saul of old, God said, go down to the hill of God. Because there's a group of people who believe that their three songs and a poem have more purpose than to just abide time between the beginning of service and the sermon. Because we want to see prophetic praise. We want anointed praise. We want men and women because if Saul could get amongst men and women with a temple, come on, and a harp, and God could take his stone-cold heart and turn him into another man, and he could fall down on his face and prophetically be changed by the power of God, then so can you. So can you. Church family, this is real. It's real. You need it. I need it. Many in our church, we've experienced it. But I say this so carefully. Just because we've experienced it does not, know, does not mean that we don't need to stir it up in our heart and lives fresh and new. You know, it's easy to get complacent. It's easy to lose your belief that God desires these things for you. Did you know when we get into the actual doctrinal side in the weeks ahead, 1 Corinthians 12 and 1 Corinthians 14 both tell us to eagerly desire spiritual gifts. There's very few times in the King James English where the word covet has a good connotation. But concerning spiritual gifts, it says covet earnestly. Covet earnestly. Long for these things. Long for these things. You know, as, I, as I'm closing right now here today, and I've probably taken a long time, I don't know what time it is to tell you this. And I, and I don't know whether I did an effective job. That's just up to you. You can go online and learn more about it than what you can glean from me here on a Sunday morning. I had an intent here today, and my intent was this, to be a spark. That's all I desired, to be a spark. Be a spark. Stir something inside you. Stir something that says, you know, wait a minute. I heard Jace testify about his experience, and I've known Jace for many years. I heard Jojo testify about his experience, and I've known Jojo for many years. I heard Pastor Brown talk about his experience. That we all had a moment like Saul, didn't we, Jace? We had a moment like Saul, didn't we, Jace? We had a moment where we said, what is this? And suddenly we found ourselves in the presence of a living God. And he came upon us in a powerful way. And we worshiped God with fervency. It changed our, our personalities. It changed our perspectives. It changed our purpose. We began to pursue after God. Became worshipers running after his presence. And we're here today to encourage you. God said he'd pour his spirit out upon all flesh. All flesh. Shane, won't you and the worship team come back together today? I think it would be right if all, uh, with Daryl and everyone, if y'all could come back if y'all are still here. To close this service in song and worship. With altars open and letting people just pray and seek the Lord. To create an atmosphere. If there's one thing I wrote down here real quickly in closing, I want to read 
because I, I, I didn't know exactly how to, to lead this, because I believe that you, there's staging that takes place at times. Does that make sense to you today? What do you mean staging? Jesus staged his disciples. He said, tarry not, or excuse me, he said, depart not from Jerusalem. Stay right there until that moment happens. When I, when I saw this, I saw my desire for you and I and for myself personally is that there would be greater consecration. We believe that's a work of the Spirit of God. Greater consecration. God is holy. When the Spirit of God is moving on your heart, the things that used to you find pleasure in, you don't find pleasure in those anymore because your spirit's grieved and you don't want that. Greater consecration, a greater pursuit after God in prayer. Did you hear that? Not the, the instrument, me. Prayer, prayer, pursuing after God. John Wesley's experience came at 3 a.m. in the morning as he sought the Lord. The history of Azusa Street are filled with men and women that sought the Lord day after day. And I don't know why. I don't think there's a calendar. I can't give you an exact reason. I, I'm not going to try to do any of that. But, but the story is, though, is that many of them, for whatever reason, just couldn't find their breakthrough. But they didn't give up. And they just continued to seek God in prayer. And when they did, the presence of God. So today... Our heads are bowed and our eyes closed. The worship team is going to lead us in song. The altars are going to be open. You're able to come and pray and seek the Lord. However we feel led to pray with you, we'll, be, we'll just wait and see how that all unfolds. But you've got to be zealous for Him. You've got to long for these things, church family. I'm not trying to say that they're not obtainable. I'm trying to simply say there should be something in your heart that says, I want more of God's presence in my life. I want to know Him more intimately. I want to receive of a gift of the Holy Spirit because if I have a gift of grace in my life, I can be more effectively used to minister to other people in the name of Jesus. I want you to know today, sir or ma'am, listen to me very carefully. God can use you to do miracles. Did y'all hear that? You can see miracles in your own life. You don't have to just read about them in the canons of uh, church history or other people's experiences, but you can read about, you can write them. They can be written in your life. If you'll take the limits off of God, if you'll say, God, with you, all things are possible. God, you pro they, the prophetic gift fell on Saul. The prophetic gift fell on David. I shared last week the prophetic gift was on Moses. The prophetic gift was in Jesus. It was in John the Baptist. It was in all the apostles. It seems to me whenever the Spirit of God falls on somebody, there's a prophetic unction. We believe it to include tongues and interpretation and also uh, the spirit of prophecy. We believe that. But, but there's definitely an unction, an utterance of some type that, that emerges out of the heart and the life of an individual when the Spirit of God has come upon them in the name of Jesus. And that's why, you know, Joe says it so often, you can't be silent. You can't be quiet at that moment. You've got to release what's in your heart, in your mind, in your spirit, the spirit of God. You've got to speak it out. So today, Father, I pray over the church family. I don't know how to close the service, God. My Father, I don't know. I'm just going to make it. I'm going to encourage the worship team to lead us in worship. I'm going to open the altars and let anybody come forward that wants to pray. 
Or if somebody wants to make an altar at their own, at their own seat, then that's to you as well, God. But I'm going to just pray that you're going to meet people and that today's a spark. If, if it's nothing more than just a spark, then God, then let, some, let a fire emerge from today. God, let a, the fire emerge from today, God, in the heart and the lives of your church family and of my church family, God. So I bless them today in the name of Jesus. Would y'all stand up with me today? Would y'all be worshipers for a few moments here today? Whatever, if you want to make this altar the place where you commune with God, then come down. Don't be ashamed. Don't be afraid. Get your place. Lift your hands before God. Worship the Lord and say, God, fill me. Fill me with your presence. Fill me with your power. Fill me with your anointing in my life today. Let's worship. Be a psalm. Worship the Lord. Be a psalmist today.